This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in New Hampshire discussing a death farm. Then we'll talk about the Dartmouth College murders. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Granite State. I'm going to ask you to think of a serial killer. Any serial killer, just the first one that pops into your head. Have one in mind? Okay, now I'm going to guess that they're a man. Was I right? Male serial killers tend to get more coverage, but female serial killers certainly exist. A historical example is the Hungarian countess Elizabeth Bathory from the turn of the 16th century, who supposedly tortured and killed hundreds of young girls. Women can be vicious, too. They just tend to follow a different MO. Researchers have found that male serial killers tend to hunt their victims who are typically strangers. Female serial killers, on the other hand, tend to gather their victims and target the people around them that they already know. Female killers are also more often known to have committed their crimes in homes, hospitals, and other places where they could potentially get away with it over long periods of time. They tend to kill in a less gruesome manner and will often turn to poison, but not always. Some women kill for sexual pleasure and control, and some even enjoy violence. Sheila K. Bailey was born on the 4th of July in 1958 in Fort Payne, Alabama. We're always going back to Alabama. Alabama. I swear. Yes. She was the youngest of six children, and her dad worked for the state of Alabama's Highway Road Division. Her mom worked in environmental services in the local hospital. It's kind of vague. I don't really know what that means. Environmental services? Mm-hmm. It's like custodians. Okay, gotcha. Which, we appreciate you guys. We yes. love our custodians at the hospital. Yeah, that's got to be hard to do that in the hospital. Well, you know what? We can't function without them. No. So Sheila did not have a good childhood. There was talk about her having suffered sexual abuse when she was either an infant or a small child. Yeah. By who? I'm not sure what the details are because that wasn't documented. It was just something that siblings kind of talked about because, you know, she was the youngest. But when she was six years old, her father drunkenly assaulted her. Yeah. Another time when she was young, her father hit her in the head with a metal can of antifreeze and knocked her out. There's another rumor that a family friend of her father sexually assaulted her. Yeah. Was no one watching this child? I don't know if the mother knew. I don't know the details. I couldn't find the specifics on who well, your was case around. Sucks so yeah, far. Yeah. And I'm just going to gloss over this because I hate animal stuff, but she killed animals when she was a kid. Well, I wonder why. Everybody yeah. that she knows is abusive towards her. So Sheila wanted to be a majorette in high school, but her mom did not let her because she was afraid she'd start running around with guys. If she did, I know. That didn't matter, though, because, of course, she ended up dating. That's not something that would change anything. But she graduated from high school in 1976. And after that, she began working for a motel alongside her older sister. I think she was around four-ish years older, but they were semi-close. Then she worked as an assistant administrator in a nursing home for a while. She had a string of bad relationships. Who hasn't? Well, this one's pretty bad. So she ended up marrying John Baxter in January of 1981 when she was 23 and he was 19. Okay. Yeah, their relationship didn't last long, though, because John found out that she was treating his daughter from a previous relationship poorly. She would lock this little girl in a closet while John was away at work. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. Talk about a stepmother from hell. Can you imagine? Oh. Luckily... They were married six weeks, and after he found out she was doing this stuff to his daughter, he ran her off. Well, good for him. So, yes, good for him. They did not stay together, thank God, and they divorced eventually. Sheila struggled with depression and often contemplated suicide. She was forging prescriptions for painkillers, and she would stand on bridges wondering if she should jump. I mean, she did have a really a god-awful childhood. 
That doesn't excuse her for locking a kid up in a closet, but she never learned how to properly mother anyone. But then she met and married Ronnie Jennings in Georgia. As soon as she got in the car with him after the wedding, she said, we shouldn't have done this. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I know, you know that's not going to be good when that's the first thing you have to say to your new husband. Whoops. And that much was very true because the relationship was violent. And it was typically Sheila that was the one doling out the violence. Once she threatened that while he was asleep, she would stab him to death with scissors. And Ronnie said she was beautiful, but unbalanced. That's putting it lightly. She wanted to divorce him, but oddly enough, for a while, he refused to divorce her. But they finally did. But once when Ronnie was telling her he was going to leave her, she washed down a bottle of pills with whiskey, then grabbed his car keys and drove off. She lost consciousness at the wheel and crashed and was in a coma for eight days because of this. Oh my. I know. Talk about, I don't even know. Just, whew. So after this, of course, because it looked like a suicide attempt, she was held in a psychiatric facility. And while she was there, she told her sister, the one she was close with, named Lynn, that an orderly tried to rape her. I don't know if that's true or not. No. Mm, yeah. You know. Yeah. After four years of marriage and a move to Tennessee, Sheila and Ronnie divorced. So she's gone from Alabama to Georgia to Tennessee. And after her relationship with Ronnie, she began finding men in the personal ads of the newspaper. It's which it's is the old school. I never even thought about that. Hinge. Oh, my bumble. gosh. Well, she wanted a specific type of partner because she advertised herself as being dominant. So this worked out for her, and she found a personal ad for another guy named Wilfred Labar, who went by Bill. He was a widowed chiropractor. He also owned a horse farm in Epping, New Hampshire. So she moved up there with Bill in 1987. Dang. Yeah, she was 29 at the time, and he was around 25 years older than her. Not mad about it. They didn't legally get married, but she took his name anyway. Maybe to seem more established in the community. I can could speculate. Be. Yeah, could be. But he was a well-known guy in the community. Right. Everyone knew him, so maybe she felt like she needed to prove herself. I don't know. But the farm in New Hampshire was 115 acres, and the house was an old-fashioned New England-style farmhouse surrounded by tall pine trees. It was off the beaten path, and there were no close neighbors. And she definitely made the people in the town talk. She was known as being very flirtatious. And she was also sleeping around, and people knew about it. She wasn't really trying to hide it. Yeah, she had a really bad temper, too. And when someone argued with her, she would remind them that she had guns and she knew how to use them. Bill had a daughter from a previous marriage. I don't know what her age was at the time, but she sounds like she was older out of the house and everything. But she said that when he got with Sheila, his entire personality changed. She had never seen him fearful before. And he seemed afraid of Sheila. She tried to take control of every single part of his life. And she even assumed control of his chiropractic business in the 1990s. He's at least, let's see, in his late 50s, early 60s at this time. I mean. And she's bossing him around? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. If one of his sessions went over the time, she would barge into the room and just rudely be like, you need to hurry up. You're going over your time. You're losing money. Right. But she wasn't afraid about being rude to patients or making them feel uncomfortable. It was all about the money. And she claimed that Bill told her that because he was aging, she needed to find a younger man. But not as in a breakup. As in she could date on the side. Just calling a pinch hitter. According to her. According to her, yeah. So she took in a lover by the name of Wayne Ennis, who was a Jamaican immigrant. So, okay, Stella. She's, yeah, so she had met him previously on a vacation to Jamaica. Stella, Stella got her group back. (laughs) She's getting something, but she met him on a vacation, then went back to Jamaica with Bill and met him again. She made a point to see him. And I guess he had an injury and she wanted Bill to look at his injured spine. He had been hit by a car while riding his bike in Jamaica, sustained some injuries from that. So he had a bad back. And then Sheila decided she was going to work on getting him a visa so she could take him back to New Hampshire with them 
The three of them. A thruple. But it's not a thruple because Bill is not involved. Yeah. He, he's, yeah. It's This happens in several cases, I feel like. It's like not actually a thruple. It's like two people and then an extra. I don't know. But she said later she didn't love him, but she had needs. I mean. So like many of her previous relationships, this one was also very volatile. On January 15th, 1995, Sheila went to the police station and filed a report saying Wayne had assaulted her. She also told them that he threatened her life. So she received an order of protection. Against the Jamaican guy. Yes. This didn't last, though, because she decided to marry Wayne with Bill's blessing. Yes, I can't Well, even. you know what, Bill? You should have put a ring on it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm unclear why they never got married, but... Because he probably was protecting himself, honestly, well, like his his finances yeah, and you stuff. think. I wonder if they have common law in New Hampshire. Arkansas doesn't. Yeah, that's a good point. They used, Didn't Arkansas used to have common law marriage? A long time a ago. A long time ago, yeah. Wayne moved into the farmhouse with Bill and Sheila, <laughs> yeah, with Bill and Sheila, but Bill slept in his own room by himself. So Wayne and Sheila shared a room. Bill was just on the outs. I don't know. But eventually, Sheila and Wayne moved into the apartment that was above Bill's chiropractic office. I don't know if he asked them to. I couldn't find anything about that. But they got their own place, so to speak. But according to Wayne, Sheila asked him if she would kill Bill for her. No, brother. And he said he was afraid to say no because he was scared of Sheila and he was worried about being on her bad side. Like, if he refused, is she going to come after me why? for not? But why kill him? Exactly. You have, you Ex- have everything. She had everything. Yeah. She was getting all the stuff. I, I, exactly. I don't know. But he said he liked Bill, so he didn't want to kill him. <laughs> he was like a father to him. Oh, boy. I, I know. It's just wild. So almost two years after their first big fight, the police received another 911 call from Sheila. Sort of. They received a call from her phone number, but whoever was on the line hung up. So, you know, of course, they had to go to the house to check everything out. And when police arrived, Wayne said that Sheila had hit him on the head numerous times with a phone. It's the 90s, so don't think iPhone. I'm assuming like big a big rotary yeah. phone, but who knows? I don't know for sure, but not, it would have hurt regardless. So he caught her in bed with another guy. And the other man pinned him down while Sheila was beating him with the phone. He also claimed that she told the man to go out and get her gun. But a few months later, she was granted a restraining order against him. Mm-mm. It's just... It's ma- too much. I know. After just 16 months, they divorced. He says he never told anyone how she treated him because he didn't want anyone to know that this is how he was living in America. Right. He was ashamed. Sure. It's really sad. And he also said that sometimes she would strip off her clothes, hit herself, smile at him, and call the police. Oh, what just, a bitch. Just, what can a you bitch. And she would say, no one's going to believe you. And she's right. I know. It's That's just what's so terrible. And I'm mean, she gets the restraining orders and yeah. stuff. It's just really ugh. It didn't take her long to find a new lover. She's never without a partner in some form. So she found one she could gain control of, and his name was James Brackett, who went by Jimmy. This relationship resulted in another call to the police on sep- September of 1998 when she claimed they got into a heated argument. Then Jimmy grabbed a knife to cut the phone line and instead accidentally cut her. Sheila's a big fan of scissors. She grabbed a pair and slashed him across his forehead. She said it was just an accident. She just meant to give him a little poke on the head. Mm -hmm. During a a brawl, you're just wanting to poke someone up? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. Before their relationship was totally over, Sheila also fired a gun at him twice, threatened to kill him multiple times, and once hit him in the face with a grilling utensil so hard that he had extreme dental trauma. She's nuts. So they were just, police were writing this off as domestic dispute. I I can only assume, but I feel like sometimes it's not taken as seriously when a female is the one Is the aggressor. Yes. Yeah. No, 100%. I agree with that. I think they're probably like, okay. Because a man, quote unquote, should be able to handle. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's terrible. Police would go out and, you know, deal with her and all this, but they didn't think she was 
a threat, you know? They just kind of like, oh, this lady again, we're going to go and da-da-da. And they didn't take much action against her. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they could have done if, I don't know. It's just complicated. But during all of this, Laura, Bill's daughter, was trying to get Sheila out of her dad's life for good. But she was unsuccessful. He even bought a house for Sheila in Tennessee and hoped she would move there. She lived there before, but she refused. She wanted to stay there and live above his chiropractic office. So strange. So Sheila was in control still of Bill's business, finances, the whole shebang. And he passed away suddenly from a heart attack at the age of 78 in December of 2000. So Bill's estate, chiropractic practice, and three of the homes he owned belonged to Sheila. Overall, this was around $2 million in the early 2000s. And she even threatened the funeral home into putting her name on the document stating she was Bill's wife, even though legally they were never married. Yeah, so no surprise here. She then ordered him to be cremated immediately. Of course. And the rest of Bill's family, including his daughter Laura, were totally stunned by this. They were like, there's no way he would give absolutely everything to her. Anything would have been better than that. But they believe Sheila had either forced Bill's hand when he was making the will, threatened him, that she was somehow involved in making this happen. Sheila had another string of tumultuous relationships, and one of them was with Michael DeLogue, who went by Mikey. He was a transient who was also dealing with homelessness on and off. He had suffered from a drug addiction in the past, and he moved to New Hampshire in 2003 to start a new life for himself. She totally took advantage of his circumstances and would go so far as to hit him in front of people. (sighs) Yeah. His parents hated Sheila and begged him to get away from her. They were probably like, look, being homeless is better than this. Mm -hmm. But Sheila got pissed at his mom and so forced Michael to make a video of himself saying that his mother abused him as a child. This is not just infuriating. And his entire family, I, I mean, I can't say for certain that that never happened, but his whole family's like, this never happened. She's making him do this, and I have to believe that because of everything else she's done. Very manipulative. She isolated him and made him cut out everyone, cut off all communication with his family, everybody. And neighbors said they would see Michael limping around the farm, even in the snow, just roaming around outside. Once they said that a trail of blood was behind him, and it looked like his ear was nearly sliced off. Oh my god. I know. She also stabbed him in the head with scissors at least once, probably more. And in 2005, Michael disappears, gone without a trace. No one knows where he went, but he's just gone. So right before Valentine's Day of 2006, she met another guy named Kenneth County, who went by Kenny, in a singles chat line. They met on Valentine's Day and had sex in the car. That's romantic. Oh, yeah. Well, so he's 24 years old. So at this time, he's younger than her. That's not a big deal. But he has an intellectual disability and essentially has a maturity of a 12-year-old. Oh, my God. And because of this, he was easily manipulated. I mean, she was manipulating people who didn't have mental disabilities, and now she's She's got this guy, and he moved into her farmhouse right away. Didn't even pack a to-go bag. Just moved in with her. His mother was worried about him because he used to call her every single day, and she would sometimes see him every day, you know, to check in in some way. But she filed two missing persons reports. He wasn't showing up for work either, which was totally unusual for him. He went to work every single day. The home used to be picturesque, but Sheila let it go. Garbage bags were covering the windows. Oh, God. Imagine this beautiful New England farm, 115 acres. All of his assets were $2 million, and there are garbage bags over the windows. Trash. Shutters were in shambles, holes in the wall. Rabbits had taken over the lawn. She covered the fences in barbed wire and had a locked gate in front of the driveway. So the police went to Sheila's to do a welfare check after Kenny's mom called them. They got there and asked if they could see Kenny, and she said no, and then closes the door in their face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're like, no, this that's not how this works. This is a welfare check. We have to see him. 
So she went and got Kenny and made him stand five feet away from the door so that they could see him. They asked if he was all right, and he just said yes. They asked if he was being held there against his will. He just said no. And then Sheila yelled at them to get off her property. Their hands were tied at that point. What could they do if he's saying he's there? I guess asking him in front of her, though, I don't know. It's like in front of the captor, kind of. But not long after this, there was a very strange incident at Walmart. Not Walmart. (laughs) What's new? There's always a strange incident at Walmart. Just put yourself, this, when I was researching this, I put myself in the position of this poor, unsuspecting store clerk. So Sheila went up to the customer service desk with Kenny. He had cuts all over his face, and I'll post a picture of this Walmart trip, and told them that another customer attacked him. She said, are you saying that a woman here caused these cuts to his face? And she said, yes, well, no. These are from a car accident. Then she started pulling up Kenny's shirt, showing them burns all over his torso. And then Sheila started yelling at the lady that she was going to sue Walmart. And multiple employees filed incident reports. So this wasn't the last of Sheila's trips to Walmart. She returned on March 17th and was pushing Kenny in a wheelchair this time. He looked ill. His skin was almost gray. Cuts all over him, swollen hands, and he's 24. A big gash across his nose. An employee went up to her and asked if they needed the police because they thought this guy looks like he's about to die. Yeah. And she said, no, I don't need the police. I'm a lawyer. I have a medical background. I'll treat his wounds. She has a medical background as a lawyer? She's everything, yeah. (laughs) So when she started noticing that employees seemed to be a little worried about her, she grabbed a disposable camera off the shelves and started taking pictures down the aisles and at all of the security cameras. They called the police, finally. They're like, this is freaky. So they showed up to usher Sheila out, and they asked Kenny if he was all right, and she screamed at him, do not answer them. And he could barely move. He's just in one of those electric wheelchairs. Oh, my. Yeah. I'll post a picture of that. And she had gas cans or, um, like, fuel cans on his lap that she was purchasing. A few days later, after she received a copy of their written report at Walmart, she got mad and called the police. And she said, I just want you to know that Kenny doesn't live here anymore. They asked why. And she said, I don't know. I don't care. And his mom had still not seen Kenny. He didn't go back home or anything. So she filed another missing persons report. And before police showed up at Sheila's house, she called them again. They don't even have to call her. She's calling the police every Her records overall, I think, were about, she called this police station around 100 plus times. Mm -mm. They probably had like a do not answer under her (laughs) caller ID if they had that. So she said, hey, I want you to listen to a tape I made. And then she just started playing some audio on the phone to the police that she made of Kenny, who she called Adam, by the way. She said he wanted to be called Adam. So she renamed him. I'm going to change your name. Adam Olympian. (laughs) What? don't know. On this tape, Sheila introduced herself as a justice of the peace and alleged that Kenny had raped several children. She was interrogating him with rapid fire questioning, finishing each question with, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Isn't that true? And his voice was low. He sounded delirious. He would just say, yes, yes. After everything she asked him, then they heard what sounded like Kenny vomiting. Sheila yelled that he was faking, and she was screaming at him to talk right. After the tape ended, the cop asked her, where is Kenneth County? And she's like, I don't know, but I never want to see him again, and then hung up. I'm telling you, this case, I don't even know. So at 9 p.m., this is after the phone call, Officer Gallagher and Detective Cody paid Sheila a visit. It was dark, and it looked like no one was home. But as they approached, they saw a burnt mattress and box spring. The fire had gone out, but there was a second fire about 35 feet away. And they could see a 55-gallon barrel and a big pile of hay. In the burn pile, they saw a chair, clippers, a melted blade, and a jagged bone sticking up with burnt flesh on one side of it. Mm -mm. Yeah, so they're there to do a welfare check, and they just found 
what looks to be a human bone, so legally they're allowed to look inside even if no one's home. Well, just as they were walking inside, a car drove up, and it was a woman named Michelle, who was one of Sheila's friends. I was shocked this woman had a single friend, but Sheila was in the passenger seat, got out, and said, is the county going to pay for that door? That's the first thing, because they busted her door open. That's the first thing she said. She's nuts. Is the county going to pay for that door? So Sheila was like, sure, you can go ahead and check the house, but Kenny's not here. He's gone. And she gave them a tour of the house, almost like she was proud of it. They found a disturbing room that could only be accessed by a ladder, and they wouldn't have even noticed it, but Sheila pointed it out to them. It went down to a cellar-like room, and there was a pair of shoes on the floor that she said belonged to Kenny. They walked over to the burn pile and asked her about that bone, and she said she had no idea, but it was probably from a rabbit, because when her rabbits die, she cremates them. They said, um, that bone is too big to belong to a rabbit. And she said, well, it's either from a rabbit or from a pedophile. Yeah. What? They were like, go back. Excuse me, miss. At this point, they're like, okay, will you please come to the station with us? And she's like, okay, as long as I can take one of my rabbits with me. Not even kidding you. She takes one of her rabbits in tow to the police station. No. No. (laughs) I can't help but laugh because everything is just so bizarre. So once they get to the station, Sheila talks their ears off on and on and on. She went on about how she believed Kid Kenny was a pedophile. She rambled about him being assaulted by a woman at Walmart that d- there was no proof of that ever happening. She said that she didn't kill him. She just went to sleep. And when she woke up, he was gone. She told him he could run really fast and he could run like a cheetah. And they said, "Not a cheetah." Oh boy! She kept going on and on about his cheetah-like speed. But they're like, "Okay, we just saw him at Walmart. He could barely move in a wheelchair, and he couldn't even—he could barely stand up, and he runs like a cheetah." And she's like, "I know. I was surprised too." She started rambling about how she had cat scan fever from too much radiation. Cat scan fever. I think she was getting that confused oh, with that boy. cat scratch cat fever scratch song. Fe- well, and you can have cat scratch fever, but anyways. Can you have cat scan fever? I don't think you can have <laughs> cat scan so. fever, but <laughs> I have been wrong. At one point, she gets the rabbit out of the cage because she brought in a little carry-on thing. She puts it in her lap, starts stroking it, and then it pees all over her. Calmly, which is the only calm thing I think this woman's ever done, she grabs some paper towels and cleaned herself. And they were getting... Ended up getting sick of the smell of the rabbit pee. So they're like, we're not getting anything useful out of this woman. This is a dead end. She's not giving us anything. So that was that. They let her go. They didn't really have any choice at this point. So finally, they got confirmation that the bone on the farm was in fact human. So it was proven. And they received a warrant to search the entirety of the home and the property for more evidence. So they're open to everything. So they found a lot of blood spatter throughout the entire house. They noted a, quote, vomitous odor coming from one area in particular of the home. I know. There was a coat with blood draped all over it, multiple burn piles, multiple pits. It took them a long time to sift through. They ended up finding skull fragments, spinal bones, a rib, hand bones, feet, bones, toes, and three teeth in the debris. They did prove that some of these bones were Kinney's and some of the blood belonged to Mikey, so they could assume by this that she likely killed them. But as far as the human toes go, DNA did not connect them to either Kenny or Mikey. It's likely she had another victim. That's unsettling, and they don't know who that could be, but they also found a notebook of Sheila's in her handwriting. And that made them think she had done more harm than just Kenny and Mikey. Because in this notebook were dates, even before she met them, with details of weights and killing methods. For example, one said 110 pounds, comma, 5 foot 4 inches, comma, incinerated, comma, ashes flushed and scattered. As in like she just wrote a confession? Like she was keeping track of the people she was – or how she was killing them, yeah. So they finally, thank goodness, had enough evidence at this point to arrest Sheila on April 1st of 2006. But guess what? She went on the run. 
and they found her the next day at a shopping center. She was just shopping. Like business as usual. With new orangey red hair. And it matched her jumpsuit. (laughs) During the trial, the jury visited the Labar's farm and also went to the Walmart where she was seen with Kenny. Sheila pleaded not guilty to murdering Mikey or Kenny on grounds of insanity. Her defense attorney described her as a deeply, deeply sick individual. It's like, well, yeah, that that's true, but... Uh, yeah. At the trial in May of 2008, a forensic psychologist testified that she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and delusional disorder. No shit. <laughs> the defense argued that, sure, she had mental issues, but the actions that she took after the killings proved that she was technically sane. And sane meaning, like, of course, you hear all the things she's doing and you're like, she's crazy. She's insane. There's just no. But in the technical sense, so she was killing people, but then disposing of bodies, hiding evidence, things that if you were truly insane, you shouldn't be doing, I guess, so to speak. Right. To put it in layman's terms. But they were basically saying she knew what she was doing was wrong. She destroyed the bodies and the evidence. She also maintained a hauling business, rental properties, shopped, paid bills. People who knew her never used the words insane to describe her in real life, like her friends and family. They did say stuff like vindictive, controlling, manipulative, and violent. And people that knew her dating back to the 80s said that she was articulate and intelligent, but wouldn't use it for good. It almost makes you wonder when she's talking to police or doing all these things, is she putting on a show? Of course. It's maybe she's just pretending to be mm-hmm. great. I mean, that's very likely. If people are like, no, she's articulate, she's intelligent, she's not insane. No, she's a sociopath. Yeah, exactly. She's just trying to manipulate everybody. So another forensic psychiatrist testified that she had a mood dysfunction and sexual disorder, and she was delusional in regards to pedophilia, but she was not medically insane. James Brackett was luckily still alive, and he testified against her, and he said he was in an abusive relationship with her for six years. Her ex-husband, Wayne, also wrote letters to the police, stating that she had asked him to kill Bill. Wilfred's daughter, Laura, testified against Sheila and told them all about her the threatening encounters with Sheila. She also said that before Bill died from a heart attack, he looked green in color. And Mikey and Kenny also appeared a greenish-gray color before they went missing. There's all these chemicals on the farm. It makes you wonder if she did something and she wanted him cremated right away. Her plea of not guilty by reason of insanity was rejected by the jury, and they found her guilty. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole in June 2008. She had an appeal in 2010, but it was rejected. They're still unsure who Sheila's other victims were and who the toes they found belonged to. So she was likely a serial killer, but is only tied to Mikey and Kenny's murders for sure. So technically speaking, she's not listed as one. Since we cover new stuff each week, I usually don't take the time to read an entire book. But there wasn't enough on her that I could just find like the there were so many missing pieces. So I ended up buying one on Kindle. <laughs> Gotta write that off on my taxes. No, but there is a book called Burn Barn by Michael Benson. And Very interesting. that's where I got all this information. There's I mean, of course it's a really long book, so there's more stuff I didn't add. I'll post pictures of Sheila and I'll post pictures of Kenny in the wheelchair with gashes across his face. At Uh Walmart. Insane. And her sister, Lynn, did testify and say she had a terrible childhood. I love her. She's my sister. And I I get that. She loves her sister, but it's like... You can't excuse. You can't. You have to have some sort of accountability. Yeah, you can't just say, well, it was a bad childhood. Plenty of people. Unfortunately, I hate it, but plenty of people have terrible childhoods. Wow. After all this, do we... Should we take a break? Yeah, I need a refill. I down my drink. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for mine? I'm ready. Fun fact, I did not type it, so you get to hear the pages turn. (laughs) So, let's see. January 27th, 2001 was a typical night for 55-year-old Suzanne Zantop, with the exception of a dinner party that she and her husband, Hoff, were hosting. Hmm. The two had met in college at Stanford and married in 1970. 
Both had immigrated from Germany. Hoff studied and got his PhD in geology. And Suzanne, her master's in political science. So they were pretty smart. Yeah. They would go on to have two daughters and both teach at Dartmouth. So Dartmouth is an Ivy League college in Hanover, New Hampshire. It's the ninth oldest college in the United States. Well, fun fact for you. It has a 9% acceptance rate. So uh, it's pretty pretty hard to get into. 50% of the students there are there on scholarship. So Hoff taught geology and earth science, and Suzanne was the faculty chair in the German department. So they're hosting this dinner party for friends and, you know, whatever. Suzanne's in the kitchen cooking, and Hoff is in his office when there is a knock at the door. Hoff answers, and there are two teenage boys. They tell him they're doing research studies for their earth science class, and he invites them inside. What? Yeah. They're unexpected? Yeah, they're just just come up and knock, and they're like, hey, we're doing some... Some research study for our class, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's a professor, so he's like, yeah, come on in. So the two start asking him some bullshit questions, and he calls them on it pretty immediately. And when he turns to walk away, one of the boys attacks him, (gasps) stabbing the 61-year-old with a knife that he had brought inside with him and then slashed his throat. Oh, my gosh. Suzanne heard the commotion, ran into check, and was stabbed multiple times as well, and her throat was also slashed. What's her motive? Just so far, we don't know. They stole three hundred and forty dollars. Oh my gosh! From Hoff's wallet, and fled the gruesome scene covered in blood. Ugh. Around six thirty, Roxanne Verona, a family friend, arrived at the home for the dinner party. The doors were open. She walked inside and found the couple on the floor in the office. Both had multiple stab wounds to the head, chest, and neck. And they, you know, everything is covered in blood. Blood is everywhere. Cops arrived. Clearly, there had been a struggle. There was knocked over furniture, trash cans, and a flipped up rug. The computer had a pulled up phone book in the internet search, but no name was typed in. It was on the letter T. They found a bloody shoe print and fingerprint along with the knife sheath for a specific seven inch knife, like a, a Rambo style knife, not like a little like right. butcher knife. So who could have done this? They had a lot of friends. They were pillars of the community. Students and faculty adored them. Both daughters were grown. One was a doctor and one was an international aid worker. They were a happy couple, very generous, no enemies. Right. So investigators received tons of tips and set up a task force to help out. The investigators focused on the faculty and students first, but nothing. Clearly, it wasn't a burglary because nothing had been taken other than his. Yeah. They had a lot of expensive art and electronics. And the only thing that was missing was was the money out of his wallet. There wasn't a lot of evidence and none that could actually pin any person down. So the investigators focused on the knife sheath found at the scene. They searched manufacturers and got a hit on a January 2000 sale online for two knives sold to Jim and Chelsea Vermont, which led them to 16-year-old James Parker. He's still in high school. They interviewed him, and he said that he had an alibi. He said he bought the knives with his buddy, 17-year-old Robert Tulick. They needed them to cut some wood and build a fort. What? But they were way too heavy, so they got rid of them, selling them to a surplus store. He was fingerprinted after he agreed to it. Robert was also questioned later and gave them the same exact story. He had a cut on his leg and told them that he had slipped on a rock and hit it on a piece of metal. Mm. He also agreed to be fingerprinted and gave them a pair of his boots. The very next day, the two stole James's mother's car and were on the run. James left a note saying, don't call the cops, but his parents called him anyways. Good. So the boots that they had taken matched the bloody prints at the scene, and the fingerprints were also matched. So 
the FBI is now involved. Right. Police put out a warrant for their arrest. By this time, the two had ditched their mother's car and were headed to California. Hitchhiking. long drive. Hitchhiking. Jeez. In New Jersey, a truck driver picked them up and broadcasted their location over his radio, asking someone to alert the authorities. Not all heroes wear capes, Lacey. (laughs) They made it to Indiana, and when they got out at a truck stop, a police officer pretending to be another truck driver arrested them and took them back to New Jersey. It was February 19th, 2001 at this point, Hmm. and this was also not a Bucky's truck stop, Lacey. So not heaven. No, no. Okay. So who were these guys, right? So they were both born in Chelsea, Vermont, about 30 minutes from the Zantops. They were smart. They made good grades. They were normal teens. Best friends, did everything together. They were on the debate team, both of them. So they were in high school. In high school, yes. They rafted rivers, went climbing, all the things. So they're good kids. What in the world would possess them to drive 30 miles to kill two respected professors who were strangers. Like, they didn't know them. They were bored. I swear. Why them? Their small town wasn't cutting it. They wanted out, and Australia is where they would go. They needed money to do that, about $10,000 to be exact. And after rolling around some ideas, everything from car theft to robbing convenience stores... They decided to knock door to door, pretending to be doing a survey. Then they would tie up the homeowners and threaten them until they gave them their PIN numbers to their ATMs. After a failed attempt in July of 2000, they tried again January 27th of 2001. First two houses they tried, no one answered. And when they knocked on the Zantops, Hoff answered the door. He led them into his office And they proceeded to question him with their fake survey. And they sucked at it. And so Hoff pulled up his computer to find a phone number for someone who may be able to help them. I guess he pissed them off by telling them, you guys are really shitty at this question asking. So let me find someone who who can help you. So when he said that, it enraged them. Because they didn't like being called out. And Robert Uh, pulled a knife from his backpack and began to stab uh, Hoff. Suzanne runs in after hearing the commotion. And Robert tells James, slit her throat. James was 16, so he remained in juvenile court. mm -hmm. Robert was 17. And if convicted, could be sentenced to life without parole. He was tried as an adult because he was 17. His attorney tried to use the insanity defense, but that shit didn't work. I mean, it didn't even work on my case. Right. (laughs) It's definitely not going to work on yours. A witness would come forward and say that they saw a young man the day before in a green station wagon leaving the Zantops home, and the description matched James' mother's car. There was also a blood stain found inside the vehicle. James admitted during court to buying the knives 16 days before they were murdered. So this was a military-grade knife called a Ricondo. It had a 5-inch blade and was named after the Reconnaissance Commando School in Vietnam that was used to train special forces in hostile territory. Medical examiners would testify that Suzanne was stabbed 11 times, Hoff 10 And the wounds were all over their bodies, and both of their throats had been slashed. In Robert's bedroom, police found both knives stained with blood matching one of the victims, and the other knife had both victims' blood on it. James was charged as an adult because the crime was so severe. He made a plea deal where he would testify against Robert and plead guilty to second-degree murder. He would get 25 to life with parole after 16 years. So this was in April of 2002. Robert pled guilty to first-degree murder and got life without parole. So in 2019, James is 34. He had served 18 years of 25, so he could have sought suspension of the rest. He got his master's while inside, but he decided to stay. He withdrew his petition after family members of the Zantops 
found out that he was up for parole and they made such a big stink of it. And he was like, you know what? I did this. It was awful. I'm just going to stay. I'm going to do my whole time. So in May of 2024 is when he officially gets out. Oh, boy. They are both at New Hampshire State Prison for Men, and they have very minimal contact with each other. Oh, gosh. Wait. So the one gets out this year? 2024. Oh, 24. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Yeah. But he's done all of his time. Yeah. But Robert's never getting out. Like, he doesn't have any possibility of parole. There is that... Um, Wild the new happened. law yeah. that has passed in the last couple of years that's if a juvenile is sentenced to life with no parole, that they're kind of going back and reopening these cases and kind of doing, yeah. let's see if they should be. So there's a possibility that yeah. Robert could get parole. I don't know how I feel about it. It's mm-hmm. I see both sides, I think, right. because what they did is, is terrible. I mean, there's right. no excuse for it, but at the same time, you're 16. You're not. Your brain has not even fully developed yet. Your frontal lobe has not fully developed yet. I'm not even so, close to the same person I was at no, 16. I didn't murder anybody. Just like even. 16 to 18. Yeah. 18 to 21. Right. Even 21 to 26. Right. There's so many levels of maturity. Not that that. I don't know. At the end of the day, I want prison to reform inmates. Sure. Because if they get out. I don't want them to reoffend. So, yeah, no, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, I just, I don't know. No one wins. Yeah. That's my case. I'm over the board teenagers. They need hobbies, get these kids and sports. sports. <laughs> exactly. Playing sports, violin, no. Something. Gosh. Your boys' club, something. Oh. No, no. That's my case. No, no, it's not great. There's one case, I don't even know where this is, but a teenage girl that shot someone or did a school shooting. I don't know the details, but she said she did it because she hated Mondays. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? But I'm not going to murder anybody. Switching gears. Yeah, let's switch gears. We have a bunch of new patrons. It's really exciting. Four, to be precise. Four. Yes. So... Two of these, I don't have their addresses for yet, so I don't know where they're from, but I sent a message to y'all, so if you didn't give your address and you want some stickers, we send those to all of our new patrons. Just message me back on there, and I'll send some stuff your way, but we have Elizabeth V. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. And we have Lynn C. Hi, Lynn. Thank you so much, Lynn. We don't know where they're from, but if we get that information and you want us to say, we'll say. We always love marking off new new spots on the map. We do. So we have Jeanette L. from California. We love a California. We love a California. Yes. Thank you, Jeanette. And Jesse G. from Arkansas. Yeah. Who's my cousin? Oh. <laughs> But thank you. Thanks, Lacey's cousin. Family member to be a patron. Oh my well, my n- sister-in-law is, but. That's two. I got yes. none. Mm, uh, you know. I, I mean, I do have favorites. I do have favorites. <laughs> but uh, Jesse also bought us two cocktails. And they were this delicious. Week, and she, her favorite drinks are Bloody Mary. So she's like, of course, y'all should have some bloodies. So I did. I didn't make them from scratch, but I got. Mr. and Mrs. T's Bloody Mary Mix. I got Sponsor the, us. Yeah. This is not an ad. I just want y'all to know the recipe. So I got that. I got the bold and spicy version. It was good. It was good. It's really not that spicy. No, no it was good. And then I added in Rocktown Vodka, of, of course. course. And I did add in some tahine for some added zest. You know I love tahine. It was good. And then I put in some pickle juice. Slam From Clausen. Put a Clausen pickle in there. and. Some celery. I didn't have olives. And they were good. So go make one. Oh, and I salted the rim, of course. Mm. And then Danny, he also just bought us cocktails. He said, cheers, ladies. Personally, I'm a Jameson guy, but enjoy a drink on me. Thank you. We'll have two more later. I'm not a whiskey gal. I, I I'm guessing not you're not all. either. Yeah. No, ma'am. I can maybe do a little bit of... In like a bourbon coffee drink, but that sounds terrible. I can't, I can't do a shot of Jameson. I actually, fun New Hampshire connection. A friend of mine that got married in New Hampshire. We went to their wedding, and they instead of doing a champagne toast, they did a Jameson shot. That's oh boy! The last time I think I did a Jameson shot, that was I don't even know. 
several, several years ago. But thank you, Elizabeth, Jesse, Jeanette, and Lynn, and Danny. We appreciate you. Thank you. And thanks, y'all, for the reviews and stuff. It's really helped us. We were in the U.S. charts for a while. That was super exciting. Very exciting. Okay, the algorithm. No, I don't even think Apple understands it. It's based on, like, reviews, listens, blah, blah, blah. But you helped us do it. We were super excited. We might have shed a tear or two. There's no proof. <laughs> Who's to say? Who's to say? Did you have a good Valentine's Day? I did. It sounds like you got the my, jackpot. My Mac kiddo, you up. my kiddo got me all the things, flowers. That's sweet. My favorite perfume. That's really that's nice. Nice card. Man. Oh, I got a gift certificate oh to a gosh. spa. My baby took care so of sweet. me. He's a sweetie pie. I'm trying to train him. Yes. So when he grows up, he he's not a how, dick, and he knows how to treat a lady. He knows how to treat a lady. Good job. How did his um, Valentine's pinata go? Oh over? man, I need to take a picture for it. Oh, oh it, you still have it? It's not broken. Well, up? it's it's busted a little bit, but so they put Valentine. It was his box, so they put it. They in put Valentine's. Okay, yes. gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So he can't get them out yet. Oh no, he beat it with a baseball oh, bat. Oh, okay. Yes, fine, 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 fine. on on the ground. What did it like, look like? Like a big heart or something? No, it was just uh, it was a baby Yoda. <laughs> Very, very Valentine's I was like, don't you want to put a heart or something on it? He's like, no. Oh, my gosh. Valentine's Day has changed. I mean. Oh, my gosh. I hope lots of new Scorpios are in the making. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Do we? Yes. Duh, no wonder I like Valentine's Day. Hello. (laughs) So, what else we got going on? We mentioned our page. Where are we next week? Arizona. Arizona. Oh my gosh. I don't know why, but I always have a hard time picking cases. For Arizona? Yeah. Or like just finding, I don't know. Last time I picked an oldie. So I feel like I need to pick something more recent. Well, at least more recent than the, I don't even know. I've kind of got a head start on it. Let me tell you, I got nothing. (laughs) Okay. 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 I think I've decided for the March Patreon episode, we should do an Ireland case like that's great for yes because look we love saint patty's day we're here for that here i love it so much do our first like kind of international episode as a whole but thanks for listening follow us on all the things i haven't done that in a while so follow us on instagram at united states of murder on facebook and twitter at us of m podcast if you want to join our patreon patreon.com slash united states of murder do all the things. If you like us, leave us a review. If you don't, just scurry away. We never have to talk about this. <laughs> and thank you to our Patreons. We adore yes, you guys. Yes, we do. Very much. We do. We're trying to constantly think of fun things we can do to... You didn't like my uh, self-defense thing I sent you today. Oh, I did. I oh, was like, we gotta you're going to be the one doing it, not me. I'm not good at self-defense. I'm going to beat Lacey up. Oh, tune in. <laughs> tune in. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.